being at AWS during those early stages, talking to customers. Amazon's, one of the Amazon's leadership principles is be customer obsessed. I got to live and breathe it firsthand, like during one of the most formative years, Amazon as a whole, right? Like, I mean, I think that shaped who I am. Welcome, everybody. My name is Haresh Singhani. This is Conversations with Haresh. We'll be talking to people of varied backgrounds, covering various topics. I'm very excited to be able to share these with you. The goal is to increase curiosity and empathy amongst all of us to help us grow professionally and personally at all levels. And of course, we also want to make sure that this is fun. So thank you again, and we'll look forward to having you. Hi, everybody. We're back. Thanks for joining us for another episode of this podcast, Conversations, where today we're going to be talking to Ganesh. He's at Expedia currently. He was also at Amazon, but he's a technology and business executive from the Seattle area. Similar conversations as some of the ones in the past, talking about where he's today, how he arrived there, what has uh, created success for him, some lessons learned. Ganesh also mentions keeping fit keeping track of your health and family. So I think you'll find this another enjoyable conversation. So let's get into it. Hi, Ganesh. Welcome. Thank you for having me here. Yeah, it's awesome. I know we've been uh, playing tag for a bit, but I'm glad we could make it happen. All of us lead busy lives and I'm confident. Actually, I know yours is no different. So <laughs> this is a fairly open-ended conversation. Start with introduction and then, you know, success, failures, recovery, growth, etc balancing life for a few minutes you can even ask me questions as a payback <laughs> so with that if you want to start with the introduction that'll be awesome start where you wish to start personal professional and kind of how have you you know arrived where you're at i'm ganesh i like work at expedia i head product for the b2b division of expedia like contributes to roughly a fourth of expedia's uh, overall revenues family of course and eight year old son yeah, we do a lot of fun stuff together. Uh, it's it's a, like raising him up is, has been the most challenging thing in my life, pretty much. Uh, you're making decisions on behalf of another human being and you're doing making those decisions for the first time ever. And all of the stresses that come with it, um, it's, it's fun, rewarding on one side, like, I mean, being with him and all that. And it's also stressful on the other side. Originally, I believe when we were speaking a few years ago, you had a little bit of an episode with the pandemic where you were stuck in India. How was that? that and your son was very young at the time. Yeah, yeah. He was just about five at that time. And we had gone to India uh, just for family visit. As usual, this was like, what, 2020, late Jan timeframe, <laughs> right? Then... Probably you just saw like a couple of cases in Kirkland and people were like, this is not much. So yeah, I had like visited family, just, I mean, my brother was expecting brother and sister-in-law. Um, and so we, we wanted to be there for, for the baby's arrival. Interestingly, the day before we were supposed to depart, India announced a full shutdown indefinitely also, like they had no timelines. <laughs> we were stuck there for like, what, maybe 100 days or so. At that time, I was working at a startup. Startup life was usually hectic, a lot more hectic than a bigger company. My life was pretty much 
working all night and during the day i mean managing my five-year-old probably those three months i aged five years so we can come back to a little bit of the work that you're doing at expedia but before that was that startup the last role or did you have another role in between this was the blockchain and AI startup I was at court. And did you start your journey in the US as a graduate student like many of the diaspora from India? No, I, I did my dual degree like bachelor's and master's from Bitspilani. And then I started working for Amazon in Bangalore. Like this was back in 2005 when Amazon just started establishing in India like a engineering center. and I was probably like the fifth or sixth employee I would say in Amazon India pretty small office and yeah so that's where I started and then I spent my first few years there it was interesting because the that was also the beginnings of AWS I would come to the U.S. during like Seattle during summer from like June to September or something and then go back and everybody would be like so jealous of me like hey you're getting the best in the world. So it was fun seeing the first few years of AWS, working closely with BD and talking to customers. And How long were you at Amazon? I was there for about 15 years, slightly less, but I spent time across various parts of the company like AWS, retail, the B2B business. And then I was at a couple of subsidiaries, Woot.com and Twitch. What were the factors that you had right that that led to success or continued growth through these multiple assignments when it comes to you know technical pieces leadership and so on domains yeah i mean a lot of what i am now uh, i think thanks to amazon and all the great mentors like who are there i mean back in the days when i started at uh, amazon in bangalore i used to work very closely with uh, amit agarwal who is now the ceo of Amazon India. He runs all of Amazon India now. Very sharp person and like a lot of good wisdom from him and several other leaders I used to work with. Yeah, I think that, that was fantastic learnings. And also I would say like being at AWS during those early stages, talking to customers. Amazon's, one of the Amazon's leadership principles is be customer obsessed. I got to live and breathe it firsthand, like during one of the most formative years, Amazon as a whole, right? Like, I mean, I think that shaped who I am all along the way, like challenging initiatives, like Amazon encourages pushing someone beyond what they can do. Mm, okay. Or at least at the moment, yeah. So, I mean, when you stretch beyond your comfort zone, you grow. My parents taught me to not give up. Like the combination of that, I think helps. Did you have, by chance, any technologists or engineering professionals in the family in previous generations or uh, were you the first no. time? I yeah, see. humble background, like both my parents used to work for uh, the government, right? Middle class family, uh, trying to make it meet, sacrificing. When you grew up at Amazon, essentially for, you know, decade plus, I don't know what your confidence level was but at, at the end of that, but you would be, I would imagine it would be pretty high, right? Because you probably had navigated many different areas of the company, created uh, successful outcomes on probably multiple product lines and whatever else was thrown at you in meanwhile, right? The teams, personalities, domains, functional areas and what have you. And then you're like, okay, I'm going to live a startup life. How much of a surprise did that end up being? I've always wanted to be part of a startup. Early days felt like a startup. Back then, we had just two BD people for all of AWS. 
five support engineers and very small teams, right? So it was for all practical purposes, like a startup. And that's what Amazon does well, like enabling groups to be independent and just run like a company. So that was my inspiration. And then later went into some of these larger organizations, right? And then I wanted to slowly transition back into smaller organizations. That's why I tried Twitch, which was a much smaller group within Amazon. And then I was like ready to take the leap. My son was at a certain age, like, yeah, he was about four-ish. That was time when, like, you're not too much energy on raising the child. <laughs> so that that's kind of when I took the dive into the startup world. And it was amazing going into the startup world because at Amazon, although, like, you work within independent teams, a lot of things are taken for granted. Central platform team, whatnot, that's providing most of the things. In the, in the startup, you got to make a lot of those decisions yourself. Like Amazon was very much about build everything mentality. And, and then in a startup, you have to consciously make a decision of build or buy or like partner, right? And most likely it'll end up being partner. So those were all pretty interesting. And also hiring talent in a startup was quite interesting. Like, I mean, when it's in Amazon, like hiring was not a challenge. Like it's, it's almost being at a position of privilege. Well-known brand, right? So not much to sell. We will established... Uh, in front of candidates and like I mean there are more candidates than jobs within Amazon so you, you end up of course there are ups and downs with the economy but there was never problems having a good pipeline hiring or paying people or whatnot but in a startup there is no brand you don't you can't pay as much as an Amazon can pay you are in the same location and you still have to convince people to come start and it's all about building that culture mission vision that Bottom, and they're coming for that more than for the money. Yeah, that was very interesting learnings for sure. See, what was better or easier? Anything was there anything easier in the startup than compared to an established company? Yeah, definitely. Like, I mean, the things that are easier for sure are execution, <laughs> right? Once you know what your priorities are, and once you have the funding for it. Execution was a lot simpler because, I mean, it's a much smaller team, bureaucracy, red tape. Uh, as long as you align with the C, I mean, you can just execute and deliver and keep moving fast. That was the single biggest thing I would say that was much easier in a startup versus like Amazon or even at Expedia now. I see. So, so maybe less coordination overhead or less bureaucracy once you kind of had the marching orders and you had the resources lined up but probably lining up of the resources, lining up of not just money, but also the human resources in terms of hiring, et cetera, was a little bit more challenging in a startup because you're less known, you're a smaller pawn, you might have less cash to throw at people using all creative means, maybe chasing talent pools that an Amazon may not need to chase. And then you also worked at a second startup. Did you learn anything new about startups in general when you were at the second one that you may not have guessed when you were at the first one? Or was it pretty much like, okay, I kind of know what I might expect in another startup and it kind of panned out that way? Or or uh, what was the second one like? The second one was a lot more interesting because I joined that during the middle of the pandemic. Like at least the first one, it was we were still going to work as usual and stuff. Like building a startup and you don't meet anybody at all. Like for a good eight or nine months, I didn't meet 
my team face to face. I mean, until the restrictions got better, it was very interesting figuring out how to do that and like definitely a lot more Zoom meetings and trying to build trust through Zoom meetings because I mean, trust is everything. So trying to do that, making the team feel included and that was all pretty challenging i would say like i had to make mistakes figure it out along the way and so that was one and the other one was in the second startup a couple of months after i joined like uh, the ceo left yeah so it was a big change figuring out how to get the startup forward like in that situation and i joined as the chief product officer there like just heading product ceo goes and usually few others also tend to leave then I took on the design org, the infrastructure and security orgs, like IT support orgs and stuff. So essentially performing the role of a chief product officer and head of design and CIO, sorry, not CEO. It was interesting, like a lot of learnings from that. And then you landed at Expedia. How long have you been at Expedia? About a year now. Interesting times, right? Also in travel industry in general or travel domain and hospitality domain? I would say I've just been lucky to join Expedia at the right time because the pandemic was almost coming to an end. Of course, I didn't know at that time when I joined. And then travel picked up. And you mentioned you're responsible for some of the B2B efforts. So are you leading technology and business or is it technology? more not not the business side uh, mostly on the product and technology side so think about expedia as this two-sided marketplace on one side we work with suppliers and suppliers like your hotel com- hotel chains and independent hotels and vacation rental owners and airlines and car rental companies and all these folks right so you work with them you bring the inventory you negotiate good prices promotions whatnot content like you bring all of that into the platform and we have the demand side so essentially now you have the supply you need to generate demand to one big source of demand is our own brands which is figure.com verbo.com hotels.com so that is what we call the b2c division and then the other big portion of demand is our b2b partners so essentially think about travel agents across the world we have more than 100,000 agents using our platform. Uh, so I lead a product called TAP, which is for travel agents. And they use that tool for booking. And then we have an API product. Other OTAs who want to just build their own experience can use. So I lead that product. Uh, and that is used by companies like Despigar and Ctrip. They are the Big C-Trip is big in China, Despigar is big in Latin America, so on and so forth. We also have a white-labeled offering. Think about everything Expedia, but if it is white-labeled. That is used by large banks like airlines. So if you use Delta, for instance, you can book Delta packages or Delta vacations, or uh, you can book hotel. And similarly, banks, if you think about Royal Bank of Canada, which is the largest bank in Canada, they have the Avion Rewards program and and you can spend points on travel and their travel site is powered by us and we power travel sites for many other banks. So, Are these B2B entities, can they have their own inventory deals or inventory is always given by you guys? Like, can I, can I 
can I say I want a white label experience for the for the front end, but I have my inventory partner who's going to, can I bring that to the platform or mostly you'll just give me the inventory? Typically for white label partners, we provide the inventory also, right? Because they are not travel experts. Having said that, it's typically there are exceptions. Some banks and some airlines do negotiate direct inventory with certain suppliers. Yeah, because they, they could represent large buyer groups, so they yeah. might be able to get some deals Sorry. or whatever. But but yeah, typically, yeah, it is limited to two, three suppliers. They would have relationships with them. Got it. Got it. Uh, Got it. But that won't be like 100% of their demand. There will be a portion of their demand, and the remaining comes from our inventory. That's how it works on the white label template side. Got uh, it. Then on the API and the travel agent tool side, they typically work with multiple suppliers. And and we typically represent like a portion of their supply. Like I mean, of course, Expedia and Booking are the two big names, and so we take the lion's share. Others would form the take. Post pandemic, there's this revenge revenge travel, and then now I was reading in the newspapers, there's not enough airplanes, right? So there are all kinds of constraints in the states. At least there aren't enough workers for the airlines, for hotels, whatever, right? And then you don't have enough airplanes. Car companies didn't have cars, right? I mean, you were paying through the roof for renting a car. It would be like more than your hotel bill, which was never, it was never heard of. Never unheard of. Like, And it, it's that interesting uh, cycle, right? Which has never happened in the past. Like travel pretty much went to zero when everybody shut down and everyone was in lockdown. And so... And no, none of these businesses knew how long that was going to last. So they had to lay off staff. They had to sell off their car fleet and other things. Like suddenly things picked back up. And it's unlike your cloud services where you can scale down and scale up pretty instant. <laughs> it is hard. Airplanes in the cloud don't scale like like the cloud. It is hard to scale your car fleet inventory or like your uh, employees. And then you had the, with the cars, you had the chip shortage, which was killing you. So how's it going? Is business good? Teams are happy and excited? And yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I love Expedia from a culture point of view. Like it's a very people focused culture. People are pretty good, very collaborative. Yeah, something that you look forward to going to work every day. Kind of new learnings. I know one year is not super long, but it's a little bit of time. Uh, anything that that maybe listeners would find surprising about Expedia or or the domain? I knew this going in, but most of the listeners would probably know Expedia as a hey, this is a portfolio of companies because Expedia historically has acquired several brands. Like there are at least like fifteen to twenty brands under Expedia. Yeah, yeah, lots of them. They've always been acquiring, right? A berry dealer from 20 whatever years ago, always buying. Travelocity and this and that. So uh, th there are several, but then like in the last two to three years, Xperia has been going through a big transformation, converging the brands, converging the platforms, transforming really from a portfolio of companies to a technology company. You can imagine the complexity of like taking 20 different tech stacks and merging it into one tech stack launching a loyalty program that goes across different brands. One key was already announced in, in the press and it'll be launching very soon here. It's like consolidation across the board and like being that 
technology company for travel. Going through the transformation, I didn't appreciate how hard it is. Yeah, sometimes greenfield is easier than transforming, right? It's something that's existing. I guess it's always the migration that kills you. Otherwise, you would all be on 10x better platforms every day, right? And how do you balance delivering business value, customer value with also these technology? Proverbial changing the engine while the airplane's flying kind of thing, right? You, you don't have time to, you can't stop the business. You can't. And you got to keep going. And especially when travel is going through the roof, you can't like slow down growth while you're fixing the... Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Obviously, the most common question of the day, generative AI and travel, how is it and will it transform what customer experience, you know, Expedia provides or all the customer experiences Expedia provides? Yeah, absolutely. This is a little bit of an experimental area uh, right now. So, I mean, everything I say, take it with a grain of salt. <laughs> but we have a good partnership with the OpenAI team. Uh, Sam Altman is on Expedia's board as well. It's good in terms of hey, here, are, here is everything that's coming in the roadmap and here's how we are thinking about it and here are the areas where we can collaborate to make the experience much better. So th- those are the kind of conversations we keep having. We did launch a OpenAI-powered chat plugin with an experience like where you can just say, hey, I want to go to this place. I want to go to New York for the weekend and I want to just relax, suggest some things. Like you can just ask the language question and then you'll get a pretty good summarized response that you can use as a guide to book your travel that's where we have started but of course possibilities of where we can go are quite limitless and some very high level ideas right like i mean ideally you might want to just ask using your voice and get back responses and you can interact and book everything without having to like do research across 20 different websites. Like booking travel is one of the most stressful and arduous experiences, time-consuming, and people typically spend 60, 90 days planning a trip, booking things after the other, going to multiple websites, do the research. There is a lot of opportunity to simplify that, make it easier for travelers to go through that phase. Right. So that's one area where I, I feel like OpenAI can, quite conversational AI in general, can transform how travel works. I think the other area where it can quite transform is when it comes to servicing. I'm sitting in the airport, my flight has been canceled. We all know how it is, like it's frustrating. We go on a call, hey, I booked this on your platform. I want to change the flight or whatnot, and you get redirected between airlines and OTAs. And it's a bit of a frustrating experience. But any other car rental or hotels, it's kind of all similar in rights in terms of how the servicing experience may not be as good as what you might get on Amazon for buying something. And there are reasons for that. In the travel industry, it's complex in the first place and there are many other constraints. I think Gen AI can potentially help. For instance, like you can have something that monitors flight status and it can automatically change your trip and reroute you. That'll be pretty delightful for a customer. Those are the kind of things that potentially can transform. And it can also transform how agents are trained. You can imagine a world where you just look at 
all of the call recordings and say, okay, for this particular issue, these are the five agents who handled it the best. And these 20 agents did not handle it well uh, based on whatever customer scores you get. And then you can create a tailored training program for those 20 agents and they can get trained. And once they pass, they understand they can now go back and handle that issue. All of this is quite manual today and like takes of time especially because of the complexity like hey if it is this airline it was booked through this mode here are the issues and here are the times when you can potentially give an exception to the policy <laughs> right like there are so many different things involved and doing customer service for travel is so much more complex than e-commerce i'm assuming your team handles global b2b the economies india as we are probably more aware uh, given our family and friend extensions over there. There are certain geographies that are growing rapidly and there's going to be like, I think it was Air India that placed the largest airliner order of any airline in history. So these geographies are, which historically may have been smaller consumers of airplane travel, etc. and experiences, but they're becoming bigger and bigger. I mean, does that mean anything or do you just have this broad horizontal platforms and functionality that is then available globally and it doesn't matter which region is growing at what pace or what mix of travel is happening in what region there are definitely nuances by geography as a company we are strong in north america and uh, europe for sure and we have opportunities in and latin america so it has got to do with trying to get the products and the supply to better place. For example, tax is very complex in some other countries, China, India, whatnot. So if you are trying to stand up a white label website for a partner in one of those countries, it's on you to handle tax. It's on you to handle the various payment methods. Like, you know how payments work in India, right? It's quite complex again, UPI and all of being able to handle that well in the product. Those are all the things that we ought to build out to do something like a white label in some of these countries. But on the other hand, API product is pretty generic because the customer handles things, partner handles everything on their side already. For example, Make My Trip is one of the partners. They handle things on their side and they use our API just for some products. It's not as difficult like an API versus white label templates on the other side of the spectrum. We got to build that muscle. How's the growth of the actual like headcount, et cetera? Because in Seattle, right, we're affected by big tech quite a bit. So obviously, Amazon has announced the reduction in force, uh, you know, multiple rounds. Microsoft, of course, we have our uh, regional offices, even though those Companies are not headquartered here. For example, Google, Meta, etc. On Expedia, I'm not sure what the latest public announcements have been. Your top line is doing good, right? Top line's doing good. Revenues are good. Yeah, and you've seen our results. Like we've had yeah, yeah, yeah. a record quarter, last quarter. So top line definitely is going good. The company is buying back shares because we believe in that. In terms of headcount, like, I mean, we are no exception to any other tech company in the area. Just like how everybody is in a holding pattern, we are in a holding pattern. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of people, they're not sure about like what comes tomorrow or the next quarter, right? In the economy as a whole, which would affect travel, of course. So people are planning very conservatively, it sounds like, and which is where you guys might be. Yeah, until we know for sure how things are going to go. Like, makes sense. Is it going to be a soft landing or is it going to be 
hard landing or whatever. Hard to predict for anybody at this point. What is the culture like in terms of, you know, Amazon's famously known to be a workaholic culture. So if you were to compare contrast to Expedia with some of the other players, including Amazon, is it as demanding in terms of number of hours and intensity or how does it compare? Yeah, people definitely work hard here as well. I think the support structure is much better and the people focus is much better. Execution speed, I think it is slower compared to some something like Amazon. And that is primarily driven by how Expedia is organized versus how Amazon is organized. Expedia is very much a matrix organization, super matrix. And then Amazon is very much into the single-threaded leadership, how every leader is responsible for their destiny. They get all the resources necessary to like deliver what on their goals. Here, I think it is all shared goals, shared responsibility structure, which by default makes it slower to align across several different teams, several different leaders. It's an interesting challenge sure like how to make that work at scale and i'm learning every day on new approaches to go faster some of the decision making framework i used to use at amazon i'm now implementing at Experia, like writing a six-pager prfaq for an idea like i mean that's now a standard for my team like i won't look at an idea unless that's there it's it'll be interesting to for me at least to figure out how can we achieve the best people focus support structure and everything that exists at Expedia how can we balance that with execution speed maybe that's a nice segue into how do you incorporate setbacks failures and how have you in your professional journey but how also do you help your teams and your peers you know currently at Expedia kind of have a healthy attitude and relationship with setbacks and failures yeah it's a good question uh, it's always the hard one right coming from amazon culture where it is pretty direct people just say things to your face pretty direct pretty blunt that's the culture i'm used to like that's where i grew up in at expedia it's not that but it's trying to figure out how can i provide feedback in a different culture and i think the journey i had through the startups really helped uh, in that process like i'm i might not have been successful at it if i came directly from amazon into expedia i would say because these other companies had different culture and i kind of fine-tune my approach of giving feedback there that helped right like i mean the single biggest thing a framework that helps me always there is this book called ideal team player i don't know if you it is a fascinating book like it talks about the three qualities that anybody should have to be an ideal team player one is hunger like do you have the hunger to take on board and like deliver and all that the second is humble do you have the humility to accept your mistakes and learn from it and all that and the third is people smartness right like are you able to are you empathetic are you able to see things from others shoes and are you able to assess the situation and use the right words at the right time so that you're not rubbing people the wrong way and you're like building long-term relationships so those are the three key ingredients for being an ideal team player like because going out of amazon into the startup world i struggled with it a bit I was rubbing people the wrong way by giving direct feedback, blunt feedback. And I realized that the world is different out here. I was an Amazon graduate, I guess, at some point, but I wasn't at Amazon too long, so I could learn, <laughs> maybe, or unlearn that some of those things, uh, which were 
stylistically very, very different from how other shops and other teams were operating, right? All of us that have been in Seattle have worked with, uh, you know, Microsoft graduates also. And Microsoft actually had a very aggressive or high-intensity culture for a long time. By the time Amazon kind of came into being in a significant presence, Microsoft was a little bit mellower, but Microsoft was probably no less intense than Amazon, probably even more intense, you know, in the 90s and, and certainly in the 80s, but Microsoft would have been much, much smaller. So there was a saying, one of the gentlemen that I used to work with, uh, he, he, who came from Microsoft and he started a technology company, which, which is where we were colleagues. And, um, you know, he called it detox period. Of course, different people take different amount of time or different aware of these things at a different level. And so, so not everybody has the same learning curve when you transition from a shop like Microsoft or an Amazon into a different shop or a startup, et cetera. But there are these elements which are different, significantly different within Amazon or Microsoft. Yeah, the key learning there is like, don't hold on to like one way. There are multiple ways to accomplish something, right? Like, so going from Amazon into the outside world, that was my biggest learning, like, because I was holding on to the Amazon way for everything, right? Like build everything or instead of evaluating or um, other things, how you give feedback, how you hire it's a little bit confusing because many teams or organizations will hire you because you came from Amazon. So there's an underlying assumption that, oh, so you want me to be like Amazon, the way I was at Amazon, because that's why you hired me. And then that's actually not what they're ready for, right? And so, yeah, it's it's a the, the styles are very different. One of the things that we see in the business-facing world, like if you're in sales or some kind of a marketing or some kind of a business-facing role, and if you make that transition from a very, very strong brand, loud brand, to a startup where you have no brand and you're asked to create the brand, sometimes it's shocking. It's just shocking to these people that make that transition because first thing that happens when you have a logo that says Amazon or whatever big name you want to pick, IBM, Oracle, Microsoft, Boeing, Starbucks, Costco, you know, when you have that logo on your business card, almost everybody will reply to your email or respond to your phone call. But when you take that logo away and you put a, basically a no logo, which could be, you know, a small company, and you try calling people and you say, can you give me 30 minutes? 99 of the 100 people that you contact, they won't pick up your call. And the one person who does is probably like, oh, I confused the number with somebody else. And that's why I picked up this call, right? <laughs> and so, but it's interesting. There's always learning. And, and then, of course, if you go from a small company to a large company, that, then they're very different. Yeah, but also like... Important thing to realize is a lot of these no-name companies are the ones who end up becoming the next big. Of course, they grow, and eventually, they, everybody kind of finds their version of success, right? Even if they never become a billion-dollar or a hundred billion-dollar company, they are still able to be successful. One of the things that's happened recently for us, uh, you know, in Hydric Advisors, we have a engineering crew, we have a little bit of a management consulting crew that you know looks at cyber and data analytics, cloud or product roadmaps and things like that. But the third team that we have is a talent team and talent acquisition, right? That domain in general is very slow because the recruiting volumes are very, very low across multiple industries in towns like Seattle because of, you know, heavy tech influence here. There are a lot of people, highly, highly talented who are right now finding themselves not busy that came from talent acquisition. Like you talk to some of these people, they're super talented. And, and one extreme case, very extreme case, I ran into this woman. She was a open heart surgeon in Argentina. For some reason, 
she's one of those people that goes and does whatever she wants to do. And she's a machine. There's no stopping her. And so in the U.S., somehow she got interested in talent acquisition. So she started recruiting. She, I think she recruited for several big tech companies. But the last one was Meta. And I talked to her. We were able to get a list of the Meta recruiters who were let go, like at the entire list, right? A lot of companies are, are not needing engineers. So what do you do with the recruiting staff? You don't need as many, right? There's so many talented people available. It depends on how long they were there. But they'll go through this transition that we're talking about, right? Which is you're in this large org, fast charging, a lot of smart people. They'll find new domains, new homes, etc. But they'll end up kind of reimagining themselves and redoing or recreating the, a style that will mesh with whatever organizations they end up at. One of the domains that a lot of people are looking at is wealth management. Talent acquisition people are people people. So if they're not going to be able to do that, they go look at other domains that are people domains, right? So wealth management is one, but there's a bunch of them, but we'll see kind of how, how it evolves. So in your teams now, you know, mess ups, failures are inevitable, but how do you give the feedback? How do you receive it? Yeah. So to me, I look at people from a coachability point of view first. Is there a attitude problem or is there a skills problem? is the first question I ask. Typically, it's a skills problem. And attitude is great and they'll be coachable, right? So again, if you go back to the framework I talked about, humility, hunger, and people smartness, are they humble or not? If it is an attitude problem, they're not humble. Those people, super hard to coach. So you try, try harder, try harder. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But it's not a humility problem. It's one of the others. Like it's either the hunger problem or the people smartness problem because they are actively listening and because they want to improve their skills and they want to grow. Like it is much easier to create a constructive feedback forum where they get the feedback that they're looking for. And I keep telling people, hey, feedback is a gift, a gift that's usually not given or received. If you're on my team, you got to be super receptive to getting that gift or giving that gift. And that's an expectation that I set up front based on where the challenge is for a particular person. Like if they lack certain skills, like pairing them up with a mentor, helping them grow in that area. There are times when like it is more of a people smartness problem, right? Like where not aware of the situation, they're saying certain things and like rubbing people the wrong way. Being a coach myself and like telling them that, hey, come to me with situations where that didn't go as you expected. Let's do role-playing. Let's work through it. Those kind of sessions are pretty helpful for people to then take, oh, okay, this is what I could have done differently. On to another set of questions I had, which is, you know, you're busy, super busy, super demanding roles previously, but also at Expedia, probably a large team. But you got to keep sane. You got to family, got to watch out for your health and so on. So are there any frameworks and tools that you use for balancing life and overall growth, not just professional growth? I wouldn't say I'm the best at it. So I'm not the <laughs> right person advice, but I'm getting better. I tend to draw clear boundaries between work and life. So essentially like, hey, here is my work schedule. I start at 7 a.m. in the morning and I stop at this time in the afternoon. I'm not going to go past it, not going to look at my Slack or emails beyond this time. Having dedicated time for my son, like going and picking him up, taking him to classes, spending time with him. Those are all things that I like consciously make time for. I don't work while I'm doing that. In the past, I used to because I'm 
distracted and not like really giving my 100% to this or that. As I learn and as I gain more experience, I'm trying to give 100% to work when I'm at work and 100% to family when I'm at family and like clear boundaries. I think that that's the biggest thing and it's hard. Some days I'm pretty good at it. Some days I suck at it. <laughs> but giving 100% to whatever it is and like setting time in your You had a breathing pointer for people who think they can't run. Yeah, the breathing pointer. It was a like revelation for me at one point because I always wanted to run longer distance and I couldn't. I read a lot of these books to try and figure out what I'm doing wrong. <laughs> and one of the key things that helped me, it may not help everybody, helped me was like, hey, breathe in through your nose and breathe out through your mouth and keep your core strong while running. You can go longer without getting exhausted and it regulates your heart rate and everything. Like that has helped me quite a bit. And uh, I think I mentioned, right, the friend that was on the walk with us the other day when we were talking about this, uh, he started using the technique and he said he could run much better than he ever would have imagined. Otherwise, you're saying it's probably not your original piece of knowledge, but at least you helped propagate it, though. So that's great. <laughs> with somebody who is benefiting from it. Are you into spiritual or meditation practices? Or? Yeah, I mean, I have a very different take on spirituality or meditation. <laughs> like traditionally what people do, I don't do. To me, um, being in nature is meditation. So like I go out and like just get fresh air and again, not look at devices. <laughs> just so be in the moment there and taking the fresh air and go around like that is quite calming and meditative for me my fitness watch is proof because like during those times like my stress levels are the lowest pretty much that's really for me like are doing something in my backyard doing some painting which i tend to do once in a while like not so much recently but so that's that's kind of how i handle meditation Run. there's a lot of empirical data that outdoor time is extremely therapeutic, even necessary for humans. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole different topic, but the way most modern dwellings are set up and modern cities are set up are far potentially or significantly far from how evolutionarily uh, hum humans were meant to roam the earth, right? Yeah, you know, looking at green things, open sky, or even with clouds in Seattle, outside air, a lot of uh, woods. I think it's a great way to heal or um, regain your energy, recharge your batteries. Everybody has a different way or different things that kind of, you know, help you uh, get get uh, recharged and relaxed and so on, right? First, reading, prayers, uh, fellowship, sports. A lot of people do team sports that you know, seems to be something that works for a lot of people, right? I know we're towards the end of our conversation. Happy to let you return the favor if you have any questions for me. I mean, we've spoken a lot uh, during our walks and stuff. How do you handle work-life balance or how have you seen busy professionals that you talk to handle that? I, I, everybody does it slightly differently, obviously. There's factors that are very personal that can be unique, like the amount of sleep. A person needs 
can be different from person to person, right? So like I need my sleep. If I don't get seven to eight hours, occasionally even nine hours, I'm just not even functional, let alone happy or, you know, at the top of the game, I'm, I'm not super functional. So that's something that I need. Writing, reading can be helpful for me. That's that that helps. One thing that I just recently was learning from another entrepreneur is, is riding your energy waves. So what happens is you may not be open to pushing on certain fronts at certain times. But usually if you're in a demanding professional role, especially in a leadership role or entrepreneur or something, there's a thousand things that you need to do. You can always find the ones that you experience a less of a mental block for at any given point. <laughs> so you kind of work on those and they may feel slightly less like pushing or work. And then it takes less energy. Maybe it becomes more natural kind of thing. Family time is good and big for a lot of people. Boundary. I think this setting boundaries, I've been trying to practice that a little bit more and better. But that's a big thing. I think it's front and center with the pandemic because what ended up happening is that we all started working from home and then the bleeding, the, the bleeding started happening a lot more. And it, it happened both ways. So our dogs started showing up in our Zoom sessions and our kids and stuff, right? So our work time kind of became a little bit less formal and our family time started getting some more work. Before it was like, okay, five o'clock, I know that, you know, most people in our building are out and then nobody calls you. But even at six o'clock, people now call you because they, they don't expect you to be driving or whatever, or at least they used to during the pandemic. So I think boundaries are, are good. One thing sometimes I encourage people to think about is that after a certain point, more hours you do, the less you're going to accomplish. And it get, becomes negative, right? So it's like, I will probably do better work at maybe, I don't know, 50 hours, maybe 60 than I will at 80. Like my total output probably would be higher <laughs> with the fewer hours kind of thing, right? So those are some of the things that I've, I've seen and some of the things that I use. I love out, outdoor time. So you've seen our neighborhood, the office neighborhood. So oftentimes phone calls and things, we take it while we're walking or while I'm walking. And if we have one-on-one -on -one teams, we do that outside. You feel like you almost got a bonus or you stole something. You're getting work done and you're actually kind of feeding your soul at the same time. Yeah, that's an awesome part about being in the Expedia building. Like, it's just so beautiful right across. Oh, yeah, you're right on the water. And, and the, the, the trail is forever, right? You can go probably for 10 miles. Yeah, my favorite thing is doing one-on-ones walking on the trail. So. People out of, outside of Seattle may not be as familiar, right? Even though Seattle has the gray and the rain or whatever. But probably 60, 80% of the time, it's quite walkable. Yeah, you get a light layer of jacket and... And you're good to go. So no, it's been great. Anything uh, in terms of parting gifts or thoughts for the listeners you want to share? I know we talked, we covered a lot of ground, as you were saying. Yeah. I mean, the one thing that I would say is just go after your passion and go after learning curve. Those are the two things that I've always gone after. Like, I mean, if I'm passionate about something, I'll go do it. And if I never get scared of steep learning curves, like I, in fact, embrace and love deep learning curves. And so uh, those are the two things that I've done in my career consistently that has got it. I mean, I think you got to love what you're doing or you got to do what you love, right? Then it flows naturally. Sometimes you need feedback to kind of help you get there. Be one of one that yourself, right? Where you're able to give that gift empathetically and constructively, right? Thank you, Ganesh. Uh, good seeing you and uh, we'll be in touch even though Seattle has the gray and the rain or whatever, but probably 60, 80% of the time, it's quite walkable. Yeah, you get a light layer of jacket and, 
and you're good to go. So no, it's been great. Anything uh, in terms of parting gifts or thoughts for the listeners you want to share? I know we talked, we covered a lot of ground as you were saying. Yeah. I mean, the one thing that I would say is just go after your passion and go after learning curve. Those are the two things that I've always gone after. Like, I mean, if I'm passionate about something, I'll go do it. And if I never get scared of steep learning curves, like I, in fact, embrace and love steep learning curves. And so uh, those are the two things that I've done in my career consistently. That has got I mean, I think you got to love what you're doing or you got to do what you love, right? Then it flows naturally. Sometimes you need feedback to kind of help you get there. Be one of one that yourself, right? Where you're able to give that gift empathetically and constructively, right? Thank you, Ganesh. Uh, good seeing you and uh, we'll be in touch.